I want to, years ago, or a number of years ago, Leadership Magazine wrote a rather interesting article about churches and the gospel and preaching. And I won't read the whole article to you, but I think you'll find the article interesting. I'll read a portion of it. It's by William Willimon, and it's called Been There, Preach That. I'm a mainline liberal Protestant Methodist type Christian. I know we're soft on scripture. Norman Vincent Peale has exercised a more powerful effect on our preaching than St. Paul. Listen to us on Sunday and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood may come to mind before you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I know we play fast and loose with scripture, but I've always had this fantasy that somewhere, like in Texas, there were preachers who preached it all, Genesis to Revelation, without blinking an eye, straight from the Bible, just like Jesus said it. I took great comfort in knowing that even while I preached a pitifully compromised Peel down gospel, Norman Vincent Peel, peel down gospel that somewhere good old Bible believing preachers were offering their congregations the unadulterated gospel straight up. Do you know how disillusioning it has been for me to realize that many of these self-proclaimed biblical preachers now sound more like liberal mainliners than liberal mainliners. At the very time, those of us in the mainline, old line, sidelined, were repenting of our pop psychological pap and rediscovering the joy of disciplined biblical preaching. These quote-unquote biblical preachers were becoming user-friendly and inclusive taking their preaching cues from the felt needs of us boomers and busters rather than the excuriating demands of the Bible. And I'll end with this last section. I know why they do this. After all, we mainline liberal experiential expressionists played this game before. We played this game before the conservative evangelical reformed orthodox got there. It all starts with American Christians wanting to be helpful to the present order to be relevant as the present order defines relevance. Witty guy. When he wrote it, I think he had his finger on the pulse of evangelicalism and it still rings pretty true today, it seems to me. One way for us, Omaha Bible Church, one way for me as a Christian pastor, one way to ensure irrelevance, you can finish my sentence perhaps, is to pursue relevance. If we're trying to be relevant to the watching world, dare I say unbelieving world, dare I say spiritually immature world, Guaranteed irrelevance. But on the other hand, if we are resolutely by the grace of God committed to proclaiming the eternal, the Bible says it that way, the eternal gospel, we will always be in all the right senses truly relevant. 
Our text today, that's a good introduction to our text today, which is 2 Timothy. It's Paul's swan song. It's his last letter. He's in Roman imprisonment. He's going to lose his life under the reign of Nero. And it's his final letter. He writes it to a protege. He writes it to someone he's been mentoring, a pastor named Timothy. And I realize that most of us in the room aren't pastors. There are some and some who will listen to this. But it applies to all of us in this sense. Timothy is a pastor in a cosmopolitan city, a wealthy city, a pagan city called Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. And he's pastoring a church. We know that because of 1 Timothy chapter 1. I think it's verse 3. He's pastoring a church. And so Paul is going to commission Timothy If you're going to do one thing, do this. No matter what, do this. And it's going to be promote and protect the gospel. Timothy, pastor, but you know what? He's pastoring a church. And so he's going to share everything that he hears, everything that he's been instructed, everything that he's taught with the Ephesian church. So I love, I love this book. I love Second Timothy because it's clear. I love it because it's punchy. I love it because it's timely. And I also love it because it's super easy to apply because I'm a pastor. And we are a church. And so it's not very hard to apply 2 Timothy. It's also not very hard to apply 2 Timothy because throughout the ages, every faithful pastor, every legitimate faithful congregation has struggled with, has at least at one point in time or another been tempted by doing something other than proclaiming the clear, unvarnished, necessary, important gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm so excited that we're doing this study. We started it last week. We looked at the opening two verses. We'll reread them today so you can kind of get brought up to speed. But I think it's going to be a great study for us when it comes to keeping the main thing the main thing. And really, that's what this whole thing is really about. So if you would, let's go ahead and read the opening seven verses, and then we'll study verses three, four, five, six, and seven. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And we'll stop there for now. And then we're going to revisit those verses and take a little bit closer look at them. We're going to study them. The structure I'm going to follow for our study will be five vital reminders about the gospel for the health of the church. Five vital reminders. Let's just call them gospel reminders. Five gospel reminders for the health of the church. If we want to be a true church, a legitimate church, a historic church, 
associated with the historic Christ, we're reminded by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and by application, we're going to embrace it. Because, I don't know about you, if we're not going to be a true church or a healthy church, I might want to find another one. Or I have other things I could be doing. Uh, Let's not be faking this. Let's have it be genuine and authentic. Commentators don't all agree, but just to step back for a moment, especially if you're just joining us, um, commentators tend to think that the punchline of the whole letter, it's four chapters, comes in chapter four where he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. And that's where in, in my crazy pop culture mind, I go, dun, 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 dun. Right? It's something serious. It's something sober. It's judicial, the the language is. Timothy, you're going to stand before God, and you do stand before God, and let me tell you what you're called to do. And the Ephesians church, Ephesian church by application, and he says what? In three words. Preach the word. And no doubt in context of the whole letter, he doesn't just mean the Bible in general. Preach the gospel word. The whole letter is about promoting and protecting the true gospel. It is the way to be relevant with God and relevant with those who've called, who have been called to faith in Christ. To be a little bit edgy, uh, because that's what some of you come for. Um, The apostle Paul actually says, we won't look at it today, but he actually says in second Timothy that he does all things for the sake of the elect. See, he doesn't have to, to, to chase the trendiness or the fads or all of the things because what is he trying to do? Honor Christ who called him and his target audience would be those that the Spirit of God mysteriously works in, calls and draws and enlivens and that happens through the gospel. So it's great stuff, really great stuff. Okay, Let's begin looking at these gospel reminders. I hope you're ready to. I certainly am. And the final one, the fifth one, will really carry the big punchline, if you will. So it's building, 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 building. So number one, first gospel reminder is that its history is legitimate. Its history is legitimate. The gospel's history is legitimate. It's not new. It's not a trend and therefore illegitimate. No, if we look at verse 3, I thank God, Paul says, whom I serve as did my ancestors. See, he's connecting what he does in serving God to his ancestors. We're, we're, We're holding hands. We're arm in arm. As did my ancestors with a clear conscience. One critique in the first century of Christianity is it's this nouveau 2.0 disconnected came out of nowhere thing. And the apostle Paul is saying that's certainly not true. And if that accusation is being made and maybe since Timothy's struggling and, and maybe Timothy's listening to people talk that way, Paul's saying, not, not in a million years. You know, I, I serve God. I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I serve God the same way my believing ancestors did. And so I have a clear conscience. Uh, in, in other words, the, the Old Testament is our heritage. 
right? Since Genesis 3.15, you've had the, the microcosm gospel promise, and we've been waiting, 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 waiting. The whole Old Testament is Christ-centered. Remember, it means Messiah. It's always been in anticipation. Since Genesis 3.15, it's been in, 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 hard to say, in anticipation. Since the fall, we've been waiting for the true and better Adam. And so Paul, Paul's making the connection. This isn't some speculation kind of thing that I've just come up with. Not, not in a bazillion years. And we could talk about this at length. We won't talk about it at much length. Remember the, the old covenant talks about the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. So even the old, in the old covenant world, it's already talking about something that will come and bring fulfillment because there's an expiration date. It's designed that way, right? Think about the Old Testament and all the important offices, the big ones. There are prophets, there are priests, there are kings. Why? Well, lots of different reasons. But a big reason why we have the Old Covenant, a big reason why we have the sacrificial system, a big reason why we have, oh, prophet, priests, and kings. It's always designed to anticipate and look forward to the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Paul's saying, the Old Testament, I, I'm using my verbiage now, is a Christian book. Me telling you about the Messiah <laughs> fits the Old Testament. Today, even some Christians don't even realize this. We don't have a good defense. Well, you know, it seems altogether different because after all, the Old Testament's just a bunch of character studies. The Old Testament's not a bunch of character studies. And I wonder which characters you really want to base your life after. Have you actually read the characters? They're shady. <laughs> Right? Even the best kings. Because it's always been designed to be shadowy in anticipation. That's why Paul says in Colossians, the substance belongs to Christ. We won't take the time to go there, but we, we could see that the Old Testament saints affirm the reality of justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of christ alone uh, justification is the legal terminology when you stand in god's courtroom how can you be declared good and not bad even though you are bad well guess what abraham believed you can be declared good and not bad even though you are bad how based upon faith in a coming messiah Oh, David, same thing. How do we know this? It's the very argument Paul uses in Romans chapter 4. He, he anticipates the objector. Somebody's going to say, yeah, this justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ alone thing, I don't really buy it because, you know, after all, Abraham. And it's as if it's a classroom and Paul says, I'm so glad you asked that. I'm so glad for your objection. Romans chapter 4, Abraham, oh, he quotes Genesis 12, justified by faith. And then some other smart mouth in the back of the class or the front of the class maybe says, yeah, but David, Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter four. Paul is trying to encourage Timothy who's struggling, maybe having some doubts, maybe listening to people who uh, want to do things differently. And he's saying, listen, Timothy, don't waver. Don't be blown off course. I, as your mentor, who preached the gospel to you, serve the same God as my ancestors, and I do it with a clear conscience, not by playing, you know, trickery uh, kinds of games when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Clear conscience. 
We won't take the time to go there, but we could go to Galatians and see the same thing. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. With a clear conscience, I do this. It's important. It's not new. It's, it's the eternal gospel. Finding fulfillment in Christ. Maybe also, before we move on to the next one, this clear conscience business could also be being stressed because he's making the point clear. I think this is secondary, but let's bring it up. Paul doesn't do what he does for fame. He doesn't do what he does for fortune. After all, he's writing imprisoned. I have a clear conscience. I'm not like those who in Second, Tim- Second Corinthians peddle the word of God, trying to make a buck, trying to, you know, be a politician, get elected for this, that, or the other thing, or to become wealthy and all this stuff. No, I, I do what I do with a clear conscience. So, Timothy, it's okay to trust me as an apostle. Also, by way of example, Timothy, you'll want to, you'll want to preach the same gospel that believing ancestors have been preaching and promoting, and defending. It's there in the old, in anticipation. You'll want to do the same thing, and you'll want to do it with a clear conscience. You'll also want to have a clear conscience and not have it be about fame and fortune. Even look at me as an example. We won't do it today, but we'll get to it next week. I'm suffering because of this. Talk about a clear conscience. Certainly he's not doing it for fame and fortune because he doesn't have fame and fortune. So, number one, this whole business about faithful gospel ministry, we need to have a gospel reminder, and that is that the gospel's history is legitimate. It is ancient. No, it's actually eternal. We've been waiting for a true and better Adam all along. I serve this God. Okay, one more thing, because I just can't stand it. It's so fun to study things and you discover things and then you have to decide what you don't share with people and what you don't share with people. Let's it, it go on and on and on, but this might be worth it. I serve. Isn't it kind of a weird idea to say we serve God? I think it's a weird idea because elsewhere the Bible would say God doesn't need to be served. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need Pat Abendroth, that's for sure. God doesn't need Omaha Bible Church. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need any servants. He's the omniscient, omnipotent, Great one. But if we look down a little ways, in one nine, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, I couldn't help it in my notes, circle, he saved us, and then draw a line back up on my page to I serve. Right? The Apostle Paul serves God as someone who has been saved by God. God, the great deliverer has rescued him from his sins and eternal condemnation. And you know, the right thing to do in response out of gratitude, I want to serve him. I I want to live for him. I want to honor him. I want to show my gratitude unto him. It's also interesting that the Bible elsewhere uses servant terminology regarding the Lord Jesus. He serves us as our savior, redeemer. And because we imitate Christ, because he served us in redeeming us, we serve God proclaiming the good news of that redemption message done by the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not the same kinds of servants, but we are so thankful for his service for us that out of gratitude, we want to serve God. It's awesome stuff. Okay, we'd better move on to another gospel reminder. 
the next gospel reminder is that its future is important. Its future is important. As I mentioned, the Apostle Paul is awaiting execution. This is at least the second imprisonment. So it's not the imprisonment we learned about in the book of Acts. He was released. Second imprisonment in Rome. Some think it's the Mamertine prison. Pastor Chris Peterson and I spent hours looking for the Mamertine prison. And we were so sleep deprived from doing things in India for who knows how long. We never did find it. Anyway, so there's that. Who's been to the Mamertine prison in Rome? Anybody? Can somebody drop little thing in Google Maps so we can find it next time. Anyway, (laughs) we don't know if that's the exact place where he was or not, but he's in prison in Rome and he's going to die under Nero. The future of the gospel is important. And the apostle Paul knows that the future of the gospel is important. It's God's decreed means for saving sinners. And so I think it shows up as he's anticipating his execution regarding the future of the gospel. Notice in verse 3, as I remember you constantly in my prayers. See, he's the protege. He's the disciple. He's the one he's, he's passing the baton to. I'm going to die. Somebody's got to be faithful to the gospel. And you're one of them, Timothy. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I'm reading it in that context. It's the swan song. I'm, I'm done. I, I, I'm already being offered as a drink offering, he'll say at the very end. Time is short. And so what am I going to do? I'm thinking about how this thing is going to keep going. I'm going to think about the next generation. And so, Timothy, it causes me to pray for you. I'm reading it in that kind of gospel. I read the whole letter of 2 Timothy in a gospel urgency, gospel promotion, gospel preservation kind of context because of all of the details that's given to us. So I'm reading it that way here too. I might not be right, but that's why I'm doing it. I'm praying for you, Timothy. I'm praying that you would, and we're going to see, stoke the fire of your heart for gospel ministry, that you would silence opponents of the gospel, that you would proclaim the gospel in season and out of season. Man, I'm praying, 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 because the future of the gospel is really, really important. Its future is vital. Its future is critical. Now, once again, we could make the observation, and maybe we should, that God doesn't need us. But wait a second. We do know that God has ordained to use human means, to use us, to use human instruments in bringing about salvation to other sinners. Right? We, we know Romans chapter 10. How is it that people can be saved? They have to believe. They have to trust in Christ. And, and how will they trust in Christ unless they hear the truth about Christ? And how will they hear the truth about Christ without a, what does it say in Romans 10? Preacher. Without a proclaimer. And so, again, people say, don't put God in a box. Well, God has put himself in a box. I probably shouldn't say it that way. But, right, this is how God has told us it works. This is how it works. And so people aren't just, without any faithful gospel churches, without any faithful gospel proclaimers, the gospel is not going to go out and do its work. In that sense, and I'm using my words carefully, in that sense, it's dependent upon men and women and boys and girls like Timothy, the Ephesians, and like us. Now, again, God's not, God can use other people other than us. So don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, losing my theological mind. But God has ordained certain means. Otherwise, 
Paul wouldn't be praying. God, work in Timothy's life. God, bring conviction in Timothy's life. Bring encouragement in Timothy's life. Bring passion in Timothy's life because the, from a human perspective, the future of gospel ministry is dependent upon it. I think this also speaks to his sincerity. It wasn't about, it's not going to end with me and my fame and fortune. I care about the future because I care about sinners like me and churches and pastors. So we will, I'm looking at this thinking, I'm going to pray for gospel preachers. I'm going to pray for gospel churches. I'm going to pray for those who come after us. From a human perspective, again, God can, can speak through the rocks, but we know he's not going to in this case because of what he says in Romans 10. If there's not a gospel that's been protected, there won't be a gospel that can be proclaimed. It will be another gospel, which is not a saving gospel. So he's praying for the next generation guy, pastor, earnestly. In principle, I think we can learn from that. I know we can. The gospel's future is important. Let's move on to a third gospel reminder, its relationships are dear. Its relationships are dear. If you read First and Second Timothy, you know Paul and Timothy are close. They're really close. But they're not close because they're physically related. They're not close because they served in the military together, brothers in arms. They're not close because they traveled the world together. They're not close because of You fill in the blank reasons. They're close because there's this amazing bond that happens when two individuals, maybe from totally different backgrounds or similar backgrounds, it doesn't matter, come to believe in Christ as Savior. We become spiritual siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. They're really, really close. The gospel's relationships are dear. Paul, Paul, and Paul's not only a brother, a spiritual brother to Timothy. Elsewhere we would see in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2, Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith. Probably because he's the one who preached the gospel when Timothy came to believe in the gospel. So there's also that kind of thing. But with all that in mind, let's take a look at verse 4. So this close, gospel-created, gospel-forged relationship, as verse 4 says, as I remember, and I failed to mention it earlier, but there's tons of overlap in this letter of remember, remind, remember, remind, remember, remind. Sometimes it's even a command. Not in our text today, but sometimes it is. That's where I got this idea of we need to remember things. Gospel reminders. As I remember your tears, likely when they saw each other the last time, they said their goodbyes. I love Paul. Paul loves me. We have a common bond in Christ because we're both committed to Christ, because he saved us, because we're both committed to the same gospel ministry. I remember your tears. And I actually think, it's not reading too much into it, for Paul Paul to be saying, I remember your tears. And Timothy, it's not such a subtle way for me to be reminding you of your tears. 
Otherwise, why would he be saying it here? He would just be keeping it to himself. I remember your tears. I remember that your, your love that you had for me. And by the way, I'm reminding you of your love that you had for me. In light of my love for you. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I remember the love that we share. I want you to remember the love that we share. And even though things are hard in Ephesus, ministry is challenging. Otherwise, he's not going to have to remind him of these things the way he's going to, even sometimes with some pretty pretty strong words. As you're thinking about drifting, as you're thinking about kind of watering it down, as you're thinking about maybe putting some varnish on it, I just want you to know, I want you to remember what I remember, and that's that only the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ creates this amazing, extraordinary kind of bond. Where one man will cry because he loves another man. They're not related. Remember the sweet, earnest fruit of the gospel. The love that it creates and that it forges. If we look ahead, the Apostle Paul is going to say in chapter 1, verse 15, that everybody left him, at least in Asia. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Pelagius and Hermogenes. He's saying it because it's true. He's saying it because it causes him to value Timothy all the more. He might be, I don't know for sure. But since he is writing to encourage Timothy who's struggling, and so much of 2 Timothy is Paul sharing his own struggles so that Timothy can learn, you know, that's kind of what happens when you're in faithful gospel ministry. It might be that he's saying, everybody in Asia has forsaken me. Timothy, so some church members have left, huh? Let me tell you how it is for me. I get it. These relationships that the gospel, the true gospel, truly creates and forges are so valuable. It's why there's such great heartbreak when people walk away. It's one of the worst things. I'm a bit baffled as to how in the world it actually could happen. Timothy, I love you and you love me, even if maybe you've kind of forgotten about it. Let me just remind you of that unique, special relationship that Christians have. It's a subtle or a not so subtle way of saying, Timothy, stay the course, stay focused. The gospel does what other things don't do. As a quick aside, I, I do find it intriguing to be at a church like Omaha Bible Church um, where I have few close friends. I have few people with a whole lot in common, hobbies, travel together, plans, all 
And I think it's probably true for lots of us. So if you like the same kind of books I like, we'll probably hang out. If you like the same kind of sports I like, we'll probably hang out. And there's all of these different subcultures in this culture. I like it. Because there is one thing that keeps us together and in common, and we can set aside all the other things and say, you know what? There's a unique kind of love that we have because God loved us in Christ. And I think you're really weird for having the hobbies you have. <laughs> right? Or the culinary taste that you have. Or the vacations that you like to... I mean, right? The list could go on and on and on. There's something about it I just love. And I don't even mind reminding you of it today. Saying, you know, it's good to, 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 to be steadfast and steady and focused on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that's having that's be what keeps us together. It's not the other stuff. It's about a mission bigger than it is about anything else. Of course we're together in this. And the fellowship is sweet. And you think I'm weird? And I think I won't say it. Right? It's it's quite amazing. I love it. A fourth gospel reminder. We're doing five of these and five, five is the big one. Did you notice I haven't defined gospel yet? If I do, don't let me, if I forget, don't let me leave, but it's in my notes. It's on purpose. Gospel reminder number four, its effects are observable. Its effects are observable. And I think we've already covered this in one sense, but we're going to cover it in another way. The, the, the things that the gospel does are observable things. How about verse 5? I am reminded, here he is doing it again. Remind, remind, remind. Remember, remember, remember. I remind you, struggling Timothy, thinking about compromising and, or, or softening or something like that. I, rem, I am reminded and am reminding you, it seems of your sincere faith, your genuine faith, your genuine trust, shorthand for trust in Christ and His finished work, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you also. Paul, at this point in time, is rather certain. Could he be absolutely certain? No, because he's not the Holy Spirit. But he's got a high level of certainty that Timothy's faith, Timothy's profession of faith in Christ is legitimate. He's confident. He says, it's the same faith that dwells in your mother and grandmother and now dwells in you. He uses a good gripping metaphor. It's the word for house. You know, faith is at home in you. Right? It belongs. It's settled. It's, it dwells in you. And he said, that's what he's getting at. I've been able to know you for long enough and observe you for long enough that I can see that faith has moved in. It wasn't just doing an open house. <laughs> right? It's moved in. It's settled. It's real, in other words. The effects are clear. Now, we could do a whole side study and say, how, do, how, how did he do that? How, how do you know that 
faith has made itself at home in somebody's life? Well, ever so quickly, if we looked at a text like the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, you do see that time has to do with it. Sometimes trials have to do with it. You're tested. Persecution comes. Difficulty comes. Hostility comes. Time passes. Timothy, I've known you long enough. I've seen what you've been through for long enough. Your faith looks like your grandma's faith. Your faith looks like your mother's faith. By the way, it's not perfect, but it's real. You're really still trusting in the work of Christ for you. The gospel's effects are real. And the gospel's true effects are lasting. And Paul's wanting to encourage Timothy by saying, I remember. And I remind you. If you're doubting, let me just say as an outsider, doesn't seem to me like you have a basis for doubting. I find that tremendously encouraging. Let's do the number five. They're all building toward this. I think they're building toward this because it's been reminder, reminder, reminder. And now he's going to carry the, the freight of, here's what you need to do. But I think by implication, he's been telling them all along. He's just getting him ready. Remember this? Remember this? I remember this. Do you remember this? Remember our relationship? Remember the past? Remember what's been going on? I certainly remember. I want you to remember. And now for today, at least, comes the first punchline. Comes the first call for action. In light of all of this, gospel reminder number five, its priority must be maintained. Its priority must be maintained. If you're a Christian preacher, Timothy, legitimately, and it sure looks like it, and you're pastoring a legitimate Christian church, and it sure looks like it, let me call you and the congregation to action. And I'll try my best to call you to action, echoing these words. Verse 6 says, For this reason, because of the sureness of sincere faith, even though you're struggling in zeal, even though you're struggling to, to prioritize gospel ministry with all the passion, zeal, and focus that you should be, for this reason, since there's genuine, sincere faith, for this reason, he says, I remind you, again, repetition, I remind you, having reminded you of so much already, I remind you, even in the Greek text, in the present tense, I remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you throughout this whole letter. I'm just going to be reminding you. I'm not going to give you anything new, but you need to be reminded, and you need to be re-reminded, and you need to be re-re-re-re-re-reminded, present tense. And if you're wondering, Pastor, why do you talk about these things so often? Because I'm re-re-re-re, you get the idea. Reminding you of these things. The priority must be maintained. I incessantly, unflinchingly, with repetition, repetitively, I remind you, that's present tense, to fan into flame, also present tense. So I'm going to keep on reminding you, and you're going to keep fanning into flame. This is what you do as a Christian pastor. This is what you do as a congregation. You keep fanning into flame. And I'm going to keep reminding you to keep fanning it into flame, to keep the fire hot, to keep it burning, to keep it stoked, to stay energized, to not be passive, to be all in passionately, to fan into flame. That's a great metaphor, a great image, right? 
Whatever I need to do to get that fire going. I gotta, I gotta get it going and it needs to be a good fire. It needs to be a strong fire. If we're gonna cook on it, if we're gonna stay warm through it, if we're gonna ward off the wolves by it, or whatever it is you need to do with your fire, he's using that great image. Keep, keep stoking it. So it burns hot. The implication is it doesn't burn hot, just kind of by osmosis. Keep fanning it into flame. And then he says, the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Well, salvation is a gift of God, but that doesn't seem to be what he's talking about here. That's true, but that's not what he's talking about. Which is in you through the laying out of my hands. Well, if he's not talking about salvation being the gift, what is he getting at in light of the whole letter and the other letter called First Timothy? He's getting at the gift of being called to be a Christian pastor of a Christian church. And who affirmed you officially as an apostle, as an outsider? It was me. He's even reminding him of that. This gift of God, God gifted you to do this. God called you to do this. It was externally affirmed, objectively affirmed by apostolic authority. And you know what you need to do, Timothy? You need to let it be your passion, your focus. Resolve your fervor, your stoke, your priority, your drive. Get reignited to the degree you need to get reignited and have it burn bright. And again, what are you going to do, Timothy, if this is true for you, Mr. Pastor of the church at Ephesus? You're going to say, I got to tell you guys something. This is a thing that we do together in Ephesus. I've got an important message for us. That we have to re, re, re-remind ourselves and we're being reminded by the apostle from scripture now. It's in scripture, it's Second Timothy. Stoke, 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 stoke. Why would this ever even be an issue? Why, doesn't it seem weird to, uh, maybe as an outsider, why would the church need to be re, re, re reminded to have its message and focus and priority be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we know that it is. I mean, even think about the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. He's going to command it later in this letter. Remember Jesus Christ. What a weird thing to say to Christians. Why would it need to happen? Well, maybe it's because Paul's imprisoned and maybe without our leader, we're not going to be able to do it. Or or maybe it's because Paul's imprisoned and, you know, wouldn't God want him to not be in prison if he's a true gospel preacher? And if he's in prison for being faithful, then if we're faithful, then we might be persecuted too. And, you know, it's hard to be in Ephesus, this wealthy, cosmopolitan, booming place of commerce and paganism. Maybe those are some of the reasons you need to be re-reminded again and again and again. It's actually not what people are shopping for. They might need it more than anything, but they might not know that they need it more than anything. So is it really worth it? I do have here from a book that was given to me by a church member. I won't mention his name, John. Um, 
it's put out by the Babylon Bee. So it's a lot of sarcasm and snarkasm and all that. But I think maybe the church needs to be reminded that we need to preach the gospel and protect the gospel because too many times, back to that William Willimon quote from Leadership Magazine, we don't sound like Christians in our preaching. And we don't sound like Christians when we explain the gospel. The reason the Babylon Bee, you may not like it, fine, we can still be friends. Um, sometimes I don't like the things they put on. How about that? But the reason they're so popular is because so much of what they say, sometimes in a pretty tasteless way, other times more tasteless, is because it resonates. So in this section from this book called How to Be a Perfect Christian, um, <laughs> subtitled Your Comprehensive Guide to Flawless Spiritual Living, um, but here, uh, it says, that here's a section it calls the seven essential truths of the gospel. Number one, you're amazing. Number two, God really needs you on his team. Number three, God is love and has absolutely no other distinguishing attributes. Four, Jesus died for your temporary comfort and security. The next Essential truth of the gospel, they say. Number five, did we mention you're amazing? Number six, the God of the Bible would never do anything you would personally disagree with. And the seventh and final, praise the Lord, essential truth of the gospel, they say, tongue in cheek, those who conform to cultural Christianity will be justified. So I need to go home and take a spiritual bath, having read that on a Sunday morning from a pulpit in a church. That's all ridiculous. But we laugh because it all sounds like the kinds of things that are said in Bible-believing evangelical churches. And it's sick. It really is. Stoke the flame. Fan the flame. Stay focused. Be passionate about the gospel. He's going to talk about promoting it and protecting it. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. The gospel is the good news about the work of another. The good news about the work of Christ that he did for sinners, for lawbreakers. Right? So, so Jesus came to earth, became a human being to be the perfect substitute on our behalf because we're not good at doing our jobs, if you will. We all understand substitution. We're not capable of doing our jobs. We've got to call a substitute in. God graciously provides a substitute. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life to, to fulfill all of the obligations. He did that good thing for us. Not only that, Jesus suffered his whole life. He died culminating the suffering. He died a sinner's death, though he never sinned. He made atonement on the cross. That means he satisfied the justice of God, the wrath of God that we deserve, that, that should come to us. Jesus was raised from the dead for lots of reasons. One, proving that his work was finished and accomplished. Also proving that indeed he did fulfill all righteousness. Also proving that he did perfectly atone for sins. He's the victor in resurrection. Not only that, Jesus ascended as our high priest and substitute in heaven, making intercession on our behalf as our high priest. 
The gospel is the good news about the work of Jesus. The life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. That's the good news. But people don't all always want to hear that. They want to hear they're a good person and God thought that they were so good that he had his son come and live a good example kind of life. And as long as you follow Jesus' example, then God is going to be pleased with you if you live up to the best of your ability. That's not the gospel. We need to be reminded about what it is because it is counterintuitive, even though it's true. Let's keep going and then we'll wrap up. It says in verse 7, For God gave us a stoke the fire, fan the fire. Be passionate about this Ephesian, Ephesian church, Timothy, Omaha Bible Church by way of application, our pastors by way of application, for God gave us. So when he gifted us Christian ministry, when he called us into Christian ministry back in verse 6, God also gave us something else. God gave us a spirit not of fear. It's the word for cowardice. You can't be a gospel coward. You can't be a gospel person who's timid. He did not give us a spirit of fear, of cowardice. That doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. And here's why. How about verse 7? But, but he has also given us a spirit of, now he didn't give us a spirit of, of cowardice, but he did give us a spirit of power, love, self-control. And I love to point out to you, and I'm going to do this, and we're going to get this wrapped up soon. I love to point out to you that it's really a good idea to not take this verse out of context. So, yeah, I love power. I love love sometimes. And I love self-control sometimes. <laughs> but but those he, he didn't give those verses just to be um, divorced from the context and put on a plaque somewhere. In the context of gospel ministry church, in the context of gospel ministry pastors, he didn't call us to be cowards to tell people about why they need Christ. Otherwise, the gospel won't make any sense. He didn't call us to be cowards. Why? He called us to gospel ministry and he gave us a unique kind of spirit, a spirit of power. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16. He gave us a spirit not of cowardice, but of love. Why? Because there's nothing more loving that you could ever do for someone other than to tell them the truth. Even if the truth is you've got spiritual cancer and there's only one antidote. That's the most loving thing you could do. He gave us a spirit, not of timidity, but of power, but a, and also a spirit of not fear, uh, uh, but also a spirit, not of cowardice, but of love. And the final one, a spirit of self-control. That, that maybe is my favorite one because it's the aha moment. Hadn't thought about it much before. The spirit of self-control in general, well, we could go to Galatians for the fruit of the spirit for that. And it's all true and all good. But in our context, you see what's happening? He gave us a spirit of self-control so as to not deviate from prioritizing the gospel. I'm tempted. I want more people to like me. I want to have a, you know, a, a famous church and, and I want to be famous and, you know, all of the things. Sometimes anyway. I want my family to like me. I want them to all think it's great. I want all my neighbors to like me. I want, you know, you just go on and on. He gave us a spirit of self-control to stick to the script. Because actually, that's what people need most, even if they don't know they need it. 
So we're, we're not called to relevance. We're not called to making everybody happy. We're not called to doing everything. But we are called to stoke the gospel fire. And no matter what, be the very center of what we are ultimately about. That's what we're called to. And it's not that complicated. But church history tells us it's not that easy. It's pretty interesting when you look at the seven churches in the book of Revelation and the church at Ephesus. Fast forward some years. Some good things happening at the church at Ephesus when we fast forward and the apostle John addresses them. But he does say to the Ephesian church, you've left your first love. It's not good when a Christian church has veered away from the centrality of their first love who for Christians is Christ. It's a real thing and it's a real danger. May God help us to be a church that is a legitimate gospel-promoting, gospel-protecting church at least one more week. The church is a fragile thing. And more than likely, this church will be a dead church one day. So we pray for Timothy's. And we're passionate. And we preach. And we sacrifice. And we learn. And we fellowship. Is what we do by the grace of God. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for the fact that you've given us a good run. <laughs> Kidding aside, we, we, we long to be a legitimate Christian church today. We long to be one tomorrow. We long to be one next week. Certainly, we would long to be one for longer than that. And we do pray for those who would come after us that we could pass the baton and that there could be the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed to sinners like us. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.